0: This week on Hangar Talk, aviation says goodbye
1: to an icon. And tech might transform cross-border travel. Also,
0: ads in it does make you more safe. Cirrus Vision Jet dealing with an AD. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. 1056, turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right,
1: turn back. With your hosts,
0: Ian Twombly and David Tulitz.
1: This is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hanger Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, the guest this week, this is a, a, an incredible story, and, and you caught up with Spencer. Give us a little bit of the background and tell us about him.
1: Sure enough, Ian. Well, Spencer Suderman, as some of our podcast listeners might know of him from articles we've written, is the world record-holding inverted flat spin specialist. And Spencer was headed to Yuma, Arizona, to attempt another world record in inverted flat spins when the propeller departed his pits, Whoa! and he dealt with the emergency. And there are a lot of great lessons for regular general aviation pilots like you and I. We can pick up a lot from how he dealt with that emergency.
0: That's awesome. Okay, great. And I know you just talked to him, so I haven't even heard it yet, and so I'll be excited to listen to it with everybody else. So we'll get to him a little bit later on. But for some sad news, you wrote this story, and I I just think that just kind of one of the unsung heroes, especially in more modern times of our aviation history, and that's Geraldine Cobb. And she passed away just a couple of weeks ago.
1: That's right, Ian. And uh, we're sad to report that. You know, she was 88. She died in Florida. And, and folks that don't know of her, she was a groundbreaking female aviator and one of the first lady astronaut trainees, also known as FLATS. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was part of a crew of females that were training at around the same time as the Mercury 7. Now, I didn't know much of that before I started doing a little research.
0: Yeah, it's really an incredible story, this Mercury 13, and they don't really get any due, but it was a, a group of women who, as you said, are very groundbreaking, and they, they kind of banded together and pushed for inclusion of women in, in the astronaut corps. And, you know, it's we, we kind of look back on the history and think, well, maybe that was a little far-fetched for the day because women didn't come into it until the 80s but you know you look at the russians they were putting women up very early on
1: that's true and you're right about that and not only that you know the the women aviators that were part of this first astronaut corps they were true bad blink 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 aviators i mean they were (laughs) they had their act together yeah and in, in fact jerry cobb You know, her first flight experience was when she was 12 years old and she went out of her way to get her pilot certificate and was flying B-17 bombers when she was barely older than a teenager. So that's incredible. These are real pilots. This is not a joke. This is the real the real deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very true. And then she, later in life, was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, which is incredible, for some missionary work she did through South America with uh, an aero commander, I think.
1: You know what? How many pilots do we know that have been nominated for, for a Nobel Peace Prize. And yeah, her, so now, so here's how she got into that a little bit, Ian. I found out that she was part of the Astronaut Corps. Then she also was, you know, working with the administrator of NASA for a while. And when she really figured out that she wasn't going to get into a true spaceflight experience, she started looking at other avenues and flying was always dear to her and so were humanitarian missions and yes she spent the better part of four decades flying wow. into and out of the amazon jungle in a air commander twin delivering supplies and humanitarian needs and she was very well known for that incredible
0: that's amazing amazing incredible person and um, sorry to see her go but really it's it's times like these i mean you're you're thankful for everything she did, because you get to kind of relearn about this history, and it's just fascinating.
1: It is, indeed. And a tip of the hat to all the First Astronaut Lady trainees, and one of these days, uh, we'll hear a little bit more about them. And uh, until now, we're real sorry to hear about Jerry Cobb.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, all right, moving on, the CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection. Now, David, you, you've, you I think, flown internationally, and, and I have just a little bit, and this is something that you got to do as a pilot. I mean, anytime you cross a border, you know, if you've driven through Canada or Mexico or come back on an airplane or whatever, it's, it's a little different for private pilots, though, and it can be a really complex, really frustrating process, and AOPA's been working on that.
1: That's right, Ian. We've been intimately involved with that uh, with our advocacy team. And I think the cool thing about this is that if you have an Android device, you can download an app from Google Play, and it allows pilots at these quote-unquote sanctioned locations to provide the, that kind of documentation, and it saves a lot of time and a lot of effort from doing it manually. I think that's kind of neat. What about you?
0: Yeah, it is cool. You know, it's I guess the idea is that they've started a test program up on Crane Lake in Minnesota. And this is uh, for a lot of folks who just go back and forth to fish or go, you know, out to these remote camps. The cross-border stuff is very complicated. It's like they'd have to stop and, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. And so maybe the, you know, getting an agent there was kind of challenging. And so CBP basically, they looked at it from a threat standpoint and said, hey, we think that we can process these remotely. And they've been doing this apparently for a really long time with boaters, which was news to me but uh, they've got this thing it's called rome or remote offsite arrival mobile and uh, yeah they can actually process you through face recognition you can do like a video chat or something like that with a with an agent and that's just one of the many things that we're working on
1: a cloud based quote unquote gallery of faces pulled yeah. from government databases now that is pretty And that is pretty, you know, twenty first, twenty second century stuff right there.
0: (laughs) That's right, that's right. So, you know, one of the things I think that uh, it's just a constant frustration with folks is you pull in to the, you know, to the customs location, to the airport of entry. And it's like, well, what do you do now? You know, there's this cordon-off area. Some places they want you to grab all your bags, come inside. Some places they want you to sit with the airplane and wait for them to come out. And there's just, there's no standardization. It can be a little, little challenging. And so we're working on ways that you can be processed at the airplane. So you stay with the airplane, the agent comes out, works through everything, you're on your way, be a lot faster, a lot more standardization. And I think overall, you know, pilots, they want to comply, but it's like, it can be really hard sometimes.
1: That's right, and I was going to ask you, Ian. I know I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot too much, but I do know that you went to Havana, Cuba, a couple of years ago, yep. and I thought you guys went with uh, GA. I was wondering if you might have had any kind of experience that you're willing to share with our podcast listeners about how CBP dealt with you guys, or was that something that really wasn't a factor in that case?
0: No, it was. It turned out to be great. I mean, the the challenge was, you know, you got to do eA now, so you've got to get online and. Get this really, you know, sort of funky login, and you got to tell them you're leaving, which always irks me. It irks me that you have to tell Customs and Border Protection that you're leaving the country. I feel like that's like a basic freedom infringement. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, anyway, so that's just my soapbox there. But anyway, yeah, so you got to tell them you're leaving and then file the APIS coming back in, but then you also have to call. So you've always had to call. And so now you also have to file the and call. And actually, our challenge was the phones weren't working. Uh-huh. So we went back through Key West. And it was impossible to get somebody on the phone. And I was trying for hours, and I finally did. I had to call, like, Miami and Fort Lauderdale and all these places just trying to get to somebody. But, you know, that's that's a real challenge. And unless you've got – you know, if you're working a – like, let's say you're a corporate pilot, and it's like your boss wants to go there now, you know, you're under a lot of pressure to get it done. And if you can't talk to somebody to get your uh, advanced arrival notification, it's like you could be in some real trouble. So it turns out ours – but when we actually got there, the guys were – very professional. They were nice. It was quick in and out. I did Fort Lauderdale International actually in January, coming back from the Bahamas. They were very nice. Um, That's a really, really active facility. There's, you know, like seaplane operators that come back and forth and do it all the time. And so, yeah, it just kind of depends on where you go. I've had good and challenging. And I know on the Northern border, it can be uh, even maybe more spotty.
1: Yeah. And you bring up a good point about just jumping over the border to go fishing, or maybe go visit over in Montreal or something like that. And that's right across the border from, you know, like, like it's just across the border from the States. So, yeah. jumping back yep. and forth, anything to make it a little bit easier makes a total, total lot of sense, a lot more sense to me. And I think that it'd probably spur a lot more travel too.
0: Yeah, I think so. So, I, you know, just keep an eye out on the website for more info on that as, uh, as we keep working on it. Sounds good. Okay. So, moving on, ADSB, I think it makes you safer, right? David, I mean, you agree, right?
1: I totally agree, Ian. I've felt extremely unprotected when I went flying in a little Piper Super Cub last week. You know, still dusting off my tailwheel sign-off there. But uh, it did not have ADSB in, and I felt, I, felt, I don't want to say I felt naked, but I felt less secure.
0: Yeah, I hear you. And so, so they've done a study now, and they found, this is kind of an interesting result. I'm a little skeptical of it, but we'll see, you know. They found that people that aircraft, actually, with ADSB in, are 53% less likely to have an accident and 89% less likely to have a fatal accident, and that—that's those are huge numbers.
1: Those are astounding numbers, Ian. And I tell you, I'm excited that ADS-B technology is really helping a lot more pilots out. And, and we know that part of that is because of AOPA's effort to make it much more affordable. And now we're seeing a lot of the manufacturers jump on board with uh, less expensive units and less expensive displays. I think this is a definite step in the correct direction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, AOPA and others are using that information to say, hey, look, FAA, if it's like if your responsibility is safety, here's a measurable thing that impacts safety in a positive way. Let's get this out and to as many folks and as widespread as possible and even uh, maybe up the ground stations to get even better coverage.
1: That's right. And for the podcast listeners out there, it's just a gentle reminder that the deadline is January the 1st, 2020 in most airspace where a transponder is required to date. And so that definitely increases pilot situational awareness. I love that technology. When I was flying in a, one of the uh, 172s that I fly with recently, I took my daughter up last week for Take Your Daughter to Work Day, and it did have ADSB in it. Cool, and it was so reassuring to find out where the traffic was around here. Yeah, I just felt like that was a huge benefit. Yep,
0: yep, I'm with you, and now apparently confirmed by the study. So very cool.
1: Those are strong numbers, very strong.
0: Yep, definitely. So moving on, this is just I think a fascinating story. The the SF50, the Cirrus Vision Jet, grounded, emergency AD, uh, no further flight until an. Angle of attack sensor can be replaced now. Where have we heard this before?
1: We have heard this before from the Boeing 737 Max that we have been uh, talking about. I guess most of aviation has been talking about that for the past couple of months.
0: Yep. So uh, this is just really interesting. Basically, there's a hardware problem on the AOA, and it's really uh, apparently a basic thing about the screw design and the screws were backing out and maybe causing some uh, some sensor problems. And so there's I think three incidents where. The stick shaker may be activated or some anti-stall stuff. And just like we've seen, you know, where the airplane tries to maybe pitch down really when it shouldn't be on uncommanded. Right. Yeah. So but didn't you find it interesting? So three reports of this in the SF-50, no accidents, all handled. This is GA, immediately grounded.
1: Immediately. No no questions asked. I mean, yeah. immediately on the ground But yep. you know, no discussion yeah. about
0: this. <laughs> yeah, Didn't even have time to get out. It's like yeah. there's a mandatory service bulletin. The FAA said, okay, that'll be an emergency AD. Thank you very much. And you're grounded. And it's like you right. can get, a uh, I think, a ferry permit to take it somewhere where it can the maintenance can be done. But that's it. You know, it took Boeing. It's like two major fatal accidents for the FAA to act. So I just think this is fascinating in the way the FAA has reacted to these two situations.
1: I don't know if they're more sensitive to the GA fleet or the fact that it may be in their eyes it's a little bit less onerous to basically to make that happen on the GA fleet because the airplanes probably don't cost, you know, two or $300 million. Yeah. You know, or 20 or $40 million. I think that uh, the Cirrus Vision jet, it's a hugely successful jet. Mm-hmm. I know they have back orders for it already, you know, even still. Yeah. And it seems like it's a relatively quick fix. I don't know exactly how much it costs, but uh, we do have a good story on it and our AOPA.org site that uh, Jim Moore kind of goes into a little bit more detail with that. But if I was a... Fidget jet owner i definitely want to get my airplane back in the air as soon as possible
0: yeah yeah so and i i think you know Sears will probably help out here and it's like they'll, they'll get them back in the air relatively soon i w- i thought it was interesting to see that there are more than 100 flying already uh so they're building them pretty fast but um but yeah i'm sure uh, i'm sure sf-50 owners are itching to get their jets back up in the air
1: yeah and, it, and it, like we said at the outset it, it looks like it's a, a basic hardware issue so that's something that might not be as hard to deal with as uh, Boeing's software issue, where they've got a several different systems trying to talk to each other or override each other. But yeah. it's definitely important, whether you're a little airplane or a large airplane. You know, runaway trim is not a good thing, and flying and flying safely is the, the preeminent importance for all pilots.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, final story we want to talk about today. We're going to do a quick promo. The AOPA fly coming up. In Frederick, Maryland, AOPA's 80th anniversary is this month. The fly-in later this month in May, coming up, actually. And uh, just some really cool stuff going on, including some DC-3s and C-47s from the D-Day squadron.
1: That's right, Ian. This is a great chance for folks um, that live on the East Coast, even folks who want to fly a little bit further east, to come visit with us on that Friday. That would be the Mother's Day weekend, Friday may 10th and also saturday may 11th don't forget there are also workshops that you can go to but the d-day squadron you know these guys are gonna basically they're gonna converge on aopa here in frederick maryland and then they're going to have the liberty jump team do a jump out of these aircraft in those round parachutes from world war ii and period outfits and everything as part of our 80th anniversary celebration and ian i know you've been working on a lot of the details yourself for a while, but I mean, there's going to be a short takeoff and landing contest that I definitely want to watch and a drone aerial light show. And it all starts around 5 p.m. on that Friday. And we have the Flightline Cookout, which is a little bit new this year. It's like a basically a three ring entertainment going on there, like a three ring circus and <laughs> just a lot of fun. Uh, it's just, I mean, there's going to be so much going on. The C-47s and DC-3s are going to fly around. We've got like three rounds of four stall aircraft each, uh, trying to out short land and short take off the other, and this drone aerial light show is gonna be so cool.
0: Yeah, it is very cool. So, that you know that cookout you were talking about, that's that in the Friday seminars. They'll cost you a few bucks, um, but as you can see, the entertainment's like second to none, so that's going to be very cool. Absolutely. Uh, and you get to hang out with uh, AOPA staff and your buddies and, and you know everybody else on Friday night. And then Saturday, everything's really pretty free, uh, except I think for maybe uh, lunch and breakfast. Uh, those are just a few bucks, but otherwise it's like come out to the airport, you can drive in, you can fly in and uh, check out AOPA's home airport. Like we said, it's the 80th anniversary. There's going to be cool stuff going on at the headquarters and down at the NAC, which is the big uh, hangar at the other end of the airport. And so it's just going to be a really, really fun event.
1: That's right. That's right. And before we we leave the subject, I just wanted to uh, put a bug in folks' ear that might be listening to the podcast if they want to see AOPA President Mark Baker go head-to-head with former Thunderbirds leader Richard McSpadden. And AOPA editor-at-large, Dave Hirschman, and also Dave Roy, who's helping coordinate a lot of this. They want to see a little head-to-head stall competition. They definitely need to make their way over to this airport on that Friday, May the 10th, for sure.
0: Some bragging rights and uh, maybe a bottle of scotch up on the line there.
1: (laughs) Maybe so, no (laughs) doubt.
0: Very cool. All right. Hey, uh, talk about putting on the line. Spencer Suderman, uh, this is just an amazing story, and it's so cool that you caught up with him.
1: Yeah, it was great that Spencer was so open to, to chat a little bit about his experience. And like we said at the top of the show, there's a lot to learn from what he did and how he dealt with this major emergency where he lost a propeller over Southern California. Welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast, Spencer Suderman, a world record holding pilot for inverted flat spins. And Spencer, you have a little bit of a harrowing story to tell us today. Go ahead and take us through everything.
2: Well, harrowing, hair raising, hair losing, it's always about the hair, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, the story's getting out a little bit that um, I lost a prop and made an emergency landing. And there's actually people who thought I made that up as a publicity stunt, but it, it really happened, and it was not – I certainly would not throw the prop off my airplane while uh, you know flying along over Los Angeles, but that's what happened. So there I was, flying along, minding my own business, heading down to Yuma, Arizona uh, this past Saturday to prepare to break the inverted flat spin record uh, again on Sunday morning, or as I like to say, either beat myself or not beat myself again, and I started to feel a little vibration. As I'm flying along, and I thought, what is that? Is that the rudder? Sometimes in a pit, um, you need to keep a little left rudder in while you're flying. Sometimes your foot gets lazy, and you get a little bit of yaw in the airplane, and it, it gets a you know a little buffet happens. You feel a little vibration. I thought, okay, I'll just dance on the rudder pedal. While I did it with my feet, of course, not my hands. Um, dance on those rudder pedals a little bit and see if that fixes it. And it didn't. I, my left foot was actually doing its job. But then I tried the throttle. I um, hold it back a little bit. I normally cruise the plane at about 2,600 RPM. It's got a fixed pitch propeller. So I keep it just below the red line for best forward speed. And I noticed when I reduced the power a bit, the vibration got to be a bit less. When I added some power back in, it got to be a bit more. So now I knew something about what was going on.
1: For those that, don't, that aren't familiar with your heavily modified biplane, just give us a quick rundown that what you're flying. I know it's a PITS, but go ahead and just real briefly so that folks listening will have a clue about it.
2: So the plane I'm flying I call Spare 3. It is a Pitts S1C. It is uh, actually Curtis Pitts's first commercial design that they sold plans for, that he sold plans for. And the reason I chose it for this world record is it has a flat bottom wing, a lower stall speed than the symmetrical wing pits, and I uh, figured it would get a little bit more altitude. And the, the, the airplane itself is basically unmodified. All the work was done on the engine. It's got a super powerful engine that was built um, to take this airplane to high altitude. It's got a lot of modifications. Puts out somewhere around 235, 240 horsepower, but it was also designed to breathe well at high altitude, which, which is what I needed to get that airplane up there. And also, I need power to drive the spin at high altitude because you got to have full power in to make that inverted flat spin happen. So, super hot rod pit special. So, there I was flying along and I get this vibration, so I'm checking it with the with the throttle. The throttle's right here on, on the left side, and so I always do this. You know, pilots like, you know, here there I was flying along doing this sort of thing.
1: I'm glad you have a sense of humor about this today. <laughs> I know a lot of people would really uh, would not be able to talk about it so quickly, but yeah, take us through it.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's good to talk about it. I think I think there's a lot of lessons learned here, and and really the real reason you and I are talking is because there's a lot of good positive things that came out of this, and, and things we're going to talk about in a moment here. Okay. Just about why it's important to train and and, and why all that training matters when things go wrong and you need to default back to your training to survive. So figured it was something with the engine, engine propeller. Something was going on because the throttle made the vibration better or worse. So I I tried to reduce the power to a setting where I could minimize the amount of vibration and still fly along at a pretty good speed. I was going about 150 miles an hour. And I, I reduced it a few hundred RPM and that seemed okay. I got the, I couldn't get the vibration to go away, but I certainly reduced it. Now I'm starting to think, huh, something's going on. This, you know, I've been in the air about 15 minutes. I took off from Santa Paula airport, and this is not right. Luckily, where I was uh, over the San Fernando Valley, there's Van Nuys airport, Burbank airport, and Whiteman airport, all within a few miles of each other. If this gets any worse, I'm just gonna go land and check this out. And it started getting worse at the lower RPM. So I started playing with the throttle a little bit more, and, I, and it was getting, not violent shaking, just the vibration was getting a little more intense. About the time I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go land at uh, Van Nuys. I was talking to SoCal Approach. I was on flight following. About the moment I was going to just key the mic and tell them I was going to change my plans and go land at Van Nuys, boom, prop goes away. And what was that like? Well, it didn't really make a lot of noise. Uh, all of a sudden, I felt vibration. And then I heard a tink which I believe was the prop hitting the uh, left front side of the cowling uh, and nose bowl. And if you've seen pictures online, it's pretty, pretty smashed in. And the next thing I heard was the engine started racing. So I immediately pulled the throttle back. Normally I'm flying my hands on the throttle anyway while I'm flying my, my left hand, my right hand's on the stick. Immediately pulled the throttle back and uh, it, I didn't hear any more engine noise. Now it was not quiet in the airplane and no, it wasn't me screaming, making noise, but there was uh, there's wind noise. And then I'm thinking, huh, so there is a lot of noise when the engine is not running. because that engine's pretty loud. So immediately I turn towards Whiteman Airport. Now, Whiteman Airport at this point, I'm headed eastbound. Whiteman's about my 10, 11 o'clock. I'm about two to three miles away from it. And the only reason that stands out in my mind is, you know, when I'm cruising along, cruise flight's pretty boring. You think about things. You know, everything's good. The airplane's running well. You're trimmed. You're not working very hard. I started thinking about all the time I'd spent years ago teaching flying out of Whiteman, the uh, Flight school there had a Cessna air I did a lot of spin training and unusual attitude training. And I was just thinking about all the great times I had. I got my uh, commercial rating there, my instrument rating, my instructor rating. And I knew the airport really well.
1: That's a big advantage to you at that point. Huge. So that's where I was going
2: with that little bit of a uh, side start. I knew the airport really well. So I
1: turned towards the airport, but not
2: directly to the airport. I turned towards a point maybe – you know, 1,000, 1,200 feet, let's say roughly a quarter mile off the end of the runway on what would be the final approach, normally about where you'd turn base to final.
1: Okay. So you're, you're cutting off any slack that you would have. You really are, are making a beeline for for the approach.
2: Correct. And if you look at online, I, I posted, a, I took the GPS track from the airplane and overlaid it on Google Earth and posted it. You can see the flight path pretty clearly.
1: Well, they can see it, Spencer, on your Facebook page, but if they're not a friend of yours, can they find it on, on, your, uh, on your aerobatics page?
2: Yes, if you go, yeah, if you go on Facebook and you just look up Spencer Suderman Aerobatics, anybody can uh, can log on there and see it. And I posted the uh, flight path. It's big, big red line right over Google a Google Earth map. Okay. So I headed towards that final approach area. Uh, so that's, so the first thing I did, I flew the airplane. Actually, when the prop went off, went off the uh, plane. I pushed the nose down, and I really should have said that earlier. First thing I did was get the nose down. Because about 18, that a prop only weighed 18 pounds, very lightweight carbon fiber prop. But still, that there's a change in CG, which I didn't want to find out uh, how low a speed I could get to and lose control. I certainly don't want to get so slow trying to stretch that glide out. Uh, I had uh, no reason to do that. I'm at 7,500 feet. The ground's about 1,000 feet. I had 6,500 feet to play with. I was a little over two miles from a good airport that I knew well. A lot of things were in my favor at that point.
1: I said now the, C, the CG was a factor, but you're saying it was not a huge factor in this one instance.
2: Yep, that's right, David. Um, be, keeping the airspeed up and keeping the air flowing over the elevator gives you gives you control over the airplane. Most pilots are taught, I know, because as an instructor, I've taught this myself. When you lose an engine, and I did not lose an engine, I lost a prop. But when you, you know, when you, let's just say when you lose power in the airplane. You go to, you go for best glide to try to stay in the air as long as possible and think about what you want, you know, where you're going to fly to and how you're going to land and then start going through checklists, make emergency calls and so forth. If you go back to simple things where most people are taught in an emergency, one, you aviate, which is you fly the airplane. Two, you navigate, you find where you, you find the spot you're going to land, you fly towards it. Third, and then the least important thing is to communicate, call for help, talk to somebody. So first thing I did was I flew the airplane. The prop came off and I immediately pushed the nose down, which is a training thing we do in all aerobatic airplanes, if, especially on takeoff. If you lose an engine in one of these airplanes, you better push that nose down uh, or you're going to find yourself in a stall spin very quickly.
1: And now, now a quick sidebar, because that is uh, a learned behavior as an aerobatic pilot that you have down pat, but a lot of folks don't have that down pat. And that's why we see a lot of those stall spin accidents. They try to pull back.
2: That's right. David, you're, you're absolutely right the instinct in an airplane and this this applies very much to aerobatic planes but it, it but really to all planes is if you're in a climb or even if you're in level flight you should push your nose down either a lot or a little and the reason is if you keep, if you try to maintain altitude and you don't have power the airplane is slowing down and i don't know what phase of flight you're in when when you lose that power but by pushing the nose down you're going to maintain some airspeed and you may lose a little bit of altitude, but you must have airspeed to maintain any kind of control. So that's the fly to the airplane part. You gotta keep the airplane flying. Now I saw Whiteman airport, I knew where it was. So when I pushed the nose down and, and I, I saw the airport in sight, um, in front of me, almost right in front of the nose. Now at this point I, I changed course. You can see it on the flight track. I changed course a little bit to the left so I could aim for that spot, that final approach spot I wanted to hit. I had plenty of altitude. So now that I've got the airplane under control, I'm navigating navigating towards uh, where I want to be to set myself up for a landing. Then I keyed the mic, and I was already talking to SoCal approach, ATC, getting flight following. This is so important. This is probably what helped me have a successful outcome. I was already talking to somebody. I didn't have to find a frequency. I didn't have to reach down and change the radio to a frequency. All I had to do was key the mic and talk.
1: You know, you bring up such an important point, Spencer. I'm a fellow glider uh, pilot, you know, w- with an airplane that actually formerly had a good engine. I had a, an engine out in my Mooney, and I did the same thing. I was already do- on flight following and talking to a controller, and that was it made it gave me good peace of mind and also prepared me and I had my wife and daughter as a passenger prepared us you know, for the next uh, outcome, which in our case was fine. But let's go back to your story. I totally agree with you on communicating and having that, that option to talk to ATC, even if it's flight following.
2: That's right. When I do flight reviews with pilots, I'm adamant that even if you don't need to be on flight following, be on flight following. And this is the exact reason why. When you have an emergency, the last thing you have time to do is go find a frequency and figure out how to call somebody. You You simply don't have time for that. Whether you've got five minutes in the air, in this case, I think I only had, after the prop came off, I think I only had about 60 to 90 seconds in the air. I was on the ground pretty quick. I had no time to, to mess with the radio. So I talked to, I talked to SoCal Approach, um, and you can hear me asking a couple times about the weather and the winds at Whiteman. I knew Whiteman Airport. It's runway one two or 30. I just needed to know which runway was active or which way the winds were blown. Either thing would tell me the right piece of info. That runway is about 4,000 feet long. A pitch is a pretty fast airplane on landing, and it was going to be going a little bit faster because with no prop and that FCG, I had to keep the speed up. I wouldn't have minded going through the fence on the end, although, I, you know, even if I landed hot and had to go through the fence to help slow down or try to ground loop it, not an ideal scenario because there are streets at both ends of that runway. If you go through the chain link fence, you know, you, you could end up right in front of a, a semi truck. There's a lot of commercial traffic in that area. So I, I, I would have tried to do something, but I need to know which way the wind was blowing. I felt that was critical. The air traffic controller got back to me, told me what the winds were doing. Um, By that point in time, I was over my, my final approach spot and I was pretty high and pretty fast. No problem, it's the best scenario, right? Or as I always joke around, I was landing. I was high, but I was fast.
1: But that's good, though, because now you've got options. You could side-slip if you need to. More flaps. if Does the pits have flaps?
2: No, I haven't found a pitch with flaps yet.
1: So no flaps, but you could side-slip and point up to to slow down.
2: Exactly. So what I did is first I needed to – really, I was still really high. I was still a couple thousand feet high, really too high. So first thing I did was just um, did some circles. And, you, again, you can see it on the ground track. Just to get the airplane lower, and I maintained a lot of speed as I was doing that. I got a couple of – of circles down and I started lining up on the airport and I'm looking at my altimeter, I'm looking at the airport and I realized I'm really high. No problem. Did a few S turns. You can see those on the ground track as well. You can lose a fair amount of altitude in those S turns and you can start to bring the nose up and burn off some speed at the same time. As I came out of the last S turn, I lined up on the runway. I realized I was, my altitude was right, but I was still a little fast. So I put a slip in, I did a right rudder, left wing low, and I just held that slip, pretty extreme slip, uh, as we like to say in aerobatics. I was out there doing extreme slips all the way (laughs) to the ground. In fact, I realized as I'm watching, and and if you've you've ever really slipped an airplane, if you really get that wing over, these things just drop sideways out of the sky. It's it's really a sight to behold, and it takes a little getting used to, but this is something I do frequently. And right before the left wing with lower wing was about, to, I looked over and I'm like, Ooh, that's getting pretty close to the ground. I better straighten this thing out. I rolled it up. Right. I kicked it straight down the runway. I landed. I'll be honest. I made a few bounces. Some people might joke that was four or five landings, but I got it down. As soon as I felt it stopped bouncing, I started tapping on the brakes and I was able to get the plane slowed down enough by the middle of the runway. There's an intersection. It's just a beam, the tower to just start to roll off the intersection And then I ran out of speed, and I had to get out and push it the rest of the way up.
1: Wow, man. i tell you what. It sounds like you executed a a really tremendous landing under extreme circumstances, but I like the teaching moments that you gave to us just now, the forward slip when you're really close. But before that, you were in a position where you found the airport, and even though you were high and a little fast, you were doing a little circling or a little spiraling to get back on the correct attitude, altitude, and try to adjust your airspeed that way.
0: That's right.
2: That's right. Now, and let's talk about all these things. I did not rise to this occasion. There are no heroic. If you read after-action reports of almost anything, um, soldiers in battle, police in gunfights, firemen, you know, f- saving people and fighting fires, even pilots who come out of you know dangerous situations, there's a common thread. And I do, I do read these. You know, very interested in this topic. The common thread is people do not become heroic and rise to the occasion. They default to their training always.
1: That makes good sense. So a couple of training points that you mentioned early on, which we already chatted about was number one, fly the airplane. Now you recognized pretty quickly that you had a problem. You said it was only a matter of really, I'm guessing, was it about a minute or so between the first vibration and, and your prop departing the nose of your airplane?
2: That's about right. Yeah. About a minute of vibration and the prop was gone and perhaps another minute, minute and a half till I was on the ground.
1: And in my situation, I had about a minute of heavy vibration in my Mooney, and then all of a sudden I had no engine and smoke in the cockpit. But the f- thing I was keeping in foremost in my mind was, you know, the uh, best glide speed. And actually, I did what you said. I didn't realize it, but I did what you said, which is to push the nose down. So that was a key takeaway that you mentioned to everybody who's listening on the podcast is to push that nose down.
2: Right. And it doesn't have to be extreme. I didn't push it extremely down. I just I just pushed it down enough to maintain airspeed. I was... Concerned about running out of airspeed, not knowing how far back the CG had moved by the prop disappearing, I really did not want to find out in that situation. Um, so, trying to hit best glide was not a good—I felt was not a good idea. My gut instinct just took over. Not a good idea at this point.
1: So, so h- how fast do you think you were uh, were flying at that point compared to what a best glide would be? Do you even know?
2: I do. I do actually. It's on the <laughs> – Luckily, you now we got a lot of technology because it's all captured on the GPS. So I was cruising along at 7,500 feet, about 150 miles an hour. The next waypoint that was captured in the breadcrumb track showed me at 7,000, that's probably, I think, six or eight seconds later, showed me at uh, 7,000 feet, about 155 miles an hour. And that, that trend continued. Um, I, I don't think I hit more. I, I, you know, I haven't looked at all the breadcrumb tracks. I don't think I hit more than about 160 or 165 once I found what I thought was the right descent rate. But definitely accelerated. Now the stall speed in this airplane is right around 60 miles an hour. Normally you would fly an approach at 80, so that should give you an idea how fast. And I kept that speed up while circling down. Um, it wasn't until I came out of the last circle and started S turning that, um, I, and I'll tell you, I did not look at my airspeed. I have I, my my eyes were focused on the runway outside the cockpit.
1: Well, that's a smart, another smart maneuver right there. Actually, our good buddy Dave Hirschman did a, a quick tidbit, a little. Trip for people to think about. A little trick is, you know, look out at the wings and look at the horizon out past your wing to kind of notice your best glide is basically when your, your wing is more or less level with the, with the environment out there. So, yeah, and at that point, you, you would not be looking at the airspeed. You would just be flying the airplane and doing what it takes to get down.
2: That's right. No, and that's a great point. Dave, Dave Hirschman is 100%. If uh, you, in fact, this is something um, I learned when I was becoming an instructor. When you're sitting in the right seat of something like a Cessna and you you have that weird kind of parallax looking at the ball to decide if the student's keeping the, the ball straight, you're looking for how big's the space with the ball and all these tricks. Um got the right the easiest thing to do is to just look at the wing, and he's right. If it's if it's roughly level with the horizon, then your nose is not too high and you're not gonna stall. If if you have a little bit of up angle, you're at risk of slowing down and losing airspeed. And if it's a, you know a little bit this way. You know, you're going to extend a little faster, but you're definitely not going to stall the air.
1: Gotcha. Now, there's one thing that you did in this particular emergency situation that not a lot of us would have access to, which is you were flying near a territory that you were familiar with. And a lot of times when we're on a cross-country flight, we might not be 100 percent familiar with the new terrain or our options near there. And I hate to put you on the spot, but what if you were flying somewhere that you didn't know about a, a nearby airport or what the options were? I mean, put yourself in that situation real quick, if you don't mind, Spencer, and tell us what would be something that folks could learn by in that, in that type of situation.
2: You know, that's a great question, because I took off from Santa Paula Airport, and if you're familiar with that airport or not, it's, it's literally sitting in a riverbed. There's a lot of dirt, and there's the 126 highway. So I took off, and normally you take off, you turn downwind, and you fly up along the riverbed, and I was going to go to the north, but I really didn't have a reason to be closer to the highway because I was planning to turn to the north anyway. And that was 10 minutes prior to when the prop went off. So what if I was just off of, you know, a few miles off of Santa Paula, still over the riverbed, couldn't turn back, I would have no choice but to go down in the, in the riverbed and pits and most tail draggers are pretty unforgiving if you have to land in the dirt. They, they, you might have an okay landing and the wheels tend to get stuck in the soft earth and they, they flip over. It's a very common accident type. Had this happened 20 minutes later, I would have already been over the desert. Remember, I was on my way to Yuma, Arizona. I was going to fly right over Palm Springs. Well, that would have been a great airport. I know that airport. They've got a huge runway there. But five miles further out or 10 miles further out, there's a lot of sand and there's a there's a highway. You know, landing on a highway is not always a good idea either because you come down and what if the you know truck or car doesn't realize what's going on and they don't stop and you might have a good landing and you still may get hit by a vehicle. And people talk about Landing on. Oh, I'll just land on the freeway. That's not always a good idea. And, and you know, it's hard to second guess people who survive, but there have also been people who have landed on highways have been hit by cars and an airplane has none of the safety features of a car. You might as well be sitting, you know, standing r- running out in the middle of the highway with nothing around you if you get hit by a truck, if you're in an airplane.
1: Well, that's a good point. And the other thing is that in your case, I guess the engine was still running. In my case, the engine was not running, so it was very quiet like a glider. And so I actually did land on uh, the side of a, of a multi-lane secondary highway. And uh, all of a sudden at the last minute, you know, traffic kind of got out of the way. But but I don't have a horn or, uh, you know, a PA or anything like that. So uh, your point is well taken. And there's a big debate whether or not it should be – you know, on a road or on adjacent farmland or, you know, in trees or whatever. If I didn't have my wife and daughter with me, I would have probably picked trees, but there were no other options where I was in basically the southeast part of the U.S. But anyway, getting back to it, so knowing the terrain is something that's key, and we could always do that by looking at a sectional, if we're looking at paper charts, looking at our, basically looking at our digital cockpits, that we have that, or anything that we have with us, like I tend to use ForeFlight, and I use that, and some of the terrain avoidance features in that and in Garmin's product are very, very helpful to pilots like us.
2: Yeah. So, you know, there is one other thing, though, that came up. I was wearing a parachute. I never fly my airplane without a parachute. Now, normally you you need a parachute when you're flying aerobatics. It's, It's a safety feature. I would never fly an aerobatic plane, especially a pitch, without one. And for a split second, and I literally mean a microsecond, I thought, do I jump out? And I've done some skydiver training. And this is another, I think, teachable moment. If you are an aerobatic pilot or a warbird pilot and you wear a parachute in your airplane and you've never skydived, you must go skydive. You need to know what it's like to be in free fall. Even if you do a tandem jump and tell them you're there because you're a pilot and you just want to get some experience skydiving so you know what it's like, you must go do that. If you spend 20 years wearing that seat cushion on your butt and your back and you never use it and the day you have to, will you do it? This goes back to my point. Will you rise to the occasion or will you default to your training? If you're trained to skydive and and you've put into your mind that I have paid my insurance premium, it's okay to get rid of the airplane, I'll get another one, your likelihood of jumping out is better. I have friends, I had friends, sadly, who who have crashed in aerobatic planes while wearing parachutes and they didn't even try to get out. And Mm -hmm. I have one friend who sadly tried to get out. He was about halfway out, something happened, but when they found the airplane, his parachute was deployed, but he was still in the cockpit.
1: But he had the idea to get out because he had that training and that was what he was trying to do.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I tell everybody who is an aerobatic pilot who wears a parachute, go get some training. Go to a, go to a jump school. You don't have to get your A license, which means you can jump by yourself after training. In 20, but at least do a couple of jumps and know what it's like
1: know what it's like, and also know, you know how to release the chute and, and the timing and how, the distance above the ground that would make it a, a safe option for you.
2: That's exactly right. So actually, that's a good point um, in talking about, could I have bailed out? Well, the reason that, that idea went out of my head in a split second is, one, I was over an area where there's people, there's cars, there's buildings. You know, do you want an 800-pound airplane falling on, on someone's house or you know, in a playground where kids, not a good option. I also had plenty of altitude. I knew I had, well, I felt very confident that I had the runway made. I had time to think about what I was gonna do. That did not seem like the right move. Now, had I been over the desert and my choices were landing in the dirt, which is not a good move in a pants, or landing on the highway, which is better, but not great. And also having that kind of altitude, I would have done things differently. I would have, first of all, tried to find a glide speed to extend my time in the air because now I have Mm -hmm. more time to think about my option. Then I would have thought, do I feel like I can land it? Or should I jump out? From 7,500 feet, I could, probably could have safely gone down to 3,000 or 4,000 before I felt the need to jump would be, you know, you're either going or not. Because in skydiving, uh, anything below 1,000 feet, you're at risk of the parachute not opening, and you need time to get out of the airplane. And a Pitts S1 is kind of a small plane.
1: Well, that's the other thing. It would be hard to um, figure out how in advance. It would be hard to figure out how to exit the aircraft in that kind of a situation. I think that would be a very difficult thing to do.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you have ever climbed in and out of a pit, there's a little bit of work, a little bit of gymnastics involved. It's not uh, you don't just open the door and step in and step out. So a little work there. But that's one of the things that worked right is making the right decision to stay with the airplane, um, knowing I could get to the runway or at least fly past the runway a little to the north of that airport. There's really nothing. There's very few houses. There's a couple of hills. There's a dam. Actually, Hanson Dam is up there. That might have been a secondary place to go if I had to. So, again, knowing the area. But if I didn't know the area, always if you can get to the airport. I didn't have a lot of time. I had no propeller. That airplane was coming out of the sky one way or the other.
1: Yeah, you really had no choice in that situation. You had to make a split-second decision and stick with it and basically aviate, as you said. So, uh, well, let's go back. Now, we're we're going to get through this. I have every, uh, every intention to know that you'll be back in the air with a new propeller on the S1C pit special before not too long. And get our listeners, our podcast listeners, up to speed on what you were trying to do, where you were headed, and the record that you were going to attempt on last Sunday.
2: I was on my way to Yuma, Arizona. Sunday morning, I had an appointment set up in the restricted airspace to the east of the airport. Uh, Marine Corps Air Station Yuma is in charge of that, and they let me use their airspace to come and play for these things. I was going to try to break the inverted flat spin world record current record is 98 turns. Uh, I I set that record in 2016. And as I like to tell people, uh, I keep trying to beat myself. And even if I don't beat myself when I try, I'm still the world record holder. So I win either way. My goal is 120 turns this time. Oh, if things had gone well, Sunday I would have arrived in Yuma, prepared the airplane, gone to bed, woke up Sunday morning and attempted to break that record again.
1: Now, Spencer, I know from our previous conversations, and uh, we had every intention of having you on Hangar Talk uh, in a celebratory fashion uh, this week, but I know from previous conversations that you have that airplane rigged to get to about 27,000 feet, if I recall, because that's what you needed and that's what you had figured out in your mind. You needed that kind of altitude to get the number of turns that you wanted to set the inverted flat spin record.
2: Yes, so that's true. Although I, that was the goal. So I have, I've had two goals with this plane, um, try to get it up you know, well above 25. I, I set the last record from 24,500 with a different version of a Pitts S-1. Get it to about 27 and do more turns. Well, it turns out, I found out in February when I tried this, it it wouldn't climb much above 24,000. The engine actually had plenty of power, more power. And I know that by the amount of manifold pressure I still have than the other two airplanes I've done this with. But it spins faster. It spins a lot faster. It's lighter, it's shorter, the engine and pilot are closer together. The reason I didn't do it in February, uh, I know we talked about this before, but It spun so fast that the transverse Gs or the centrifugal forces were pushing me against my seat while I'm upside down. And it just felt like I was laying there with a bag of sand on my chest and I was having a hard time breathing. So I was using a rebreather bag type oxygen mask. I aborted the maneuver about 14,000 feet, did 54 turns. Had I gone all the way down to my recovery altitude of 3,000 AGL, I would have done about 125. So what was different this time? Well... Aerox oxygen systems gave me a pressure, a diluter demand, pressure demand type oxygen mask. That wasn't going to help with the G's, but it was going to make it easier to breathe fighting against those G forces. So I had that thing packed in the airplane. I was all excited because I felt I had the the magic, the lucky charm. And everyone knows I like to be lucky mornings. I do these things. So um, I felt I had the lucky charm in my in my turtle deck that was going to help me break the record this time.
1: Well, I, I'm sure you will uh, break that record. I have no doubt. Now, uh, something I was going to ask you about last time, and I forgot. Do you do any special training for this? I mean, it's a lot of exertion on your body, and you look like a pretty fit person. Is there anything special that you do?
2: Sort of. I, I don't work out too hard. Um, I, I ride my bike. I walk. I, I do a little bit of weight training, just enough to keep my muscles toned. I'm not trying to build you know, big muscle mass because I won't fit in the airplane if I get too muscular. Well it won't fit in the airplane if I eat too much either. So you know there's a there's a balance there somewhere. When you're inverted, it's an interesting thing. When you're inverted, you really can't do all those muscle squeezing things you do for normal aerobatics where like you pull these, when you pull these positive G's, like when you go up into a loop, you have to squeeze everything in your upper body to keep that blood in your head. Otherwise it leaves your head and you can black out. But when you're inverted, the blood all goes into your head. And if you squeeze, it'll get stuck. And you'll, you'll build up high blood pressure. It's very uncomfortable and very painful. You actually have to relax when you're doing this, when you're, in, when you're doing inverted maneuvers. So you got to learn to relax, but you still have to hold that stick in the corner, keep your right foot on the rudder pedal, keep the throttle going, you know, scan the instrument panel, making sure the engine's healthy, what's your altitude. Your brain's working pretty hard. And I exercise my brain all the time. So it's in pretty good shape.
1: You're probably playing a lot of what ifs and things like that when you're uh, in that situation but how like how do you relax are you, are you thinking of a music song or or you know I don't know Disney World or favorite person or something like that I mean what are you doing to relax because that's that sounds bizarre
2: No I you get focused and when I say relax let me um I don't mean relax like hey man I'm just here to chill out and watch a you know binge on some Netflix movies I I mean you have to keep your muscles not um, you don't want to get too relaxed. and you know It's like a lifeguard at work. You're sitting in the chair and you think, oh, a lifeguard's a great job. They just sit there all day and get a suntan. But they're so focused on the swimming pool and looking for people, that's actually tiring too, to keep your awareness that high. So I have to keep my body relaxed, my muscles relaxed, especially in my neck and up here. The blood doesn't get trapped in my head, but I've got to keep my focus strong on what's going on with the airplane. And it's still a little wow. bit tiring.
1: So it's a little, bit of a, mental, a little bit of a mental exercise while you're trying to become physically relaxed to make sure that that inverted situation doesn't go to your head.
2: Exactly. That's literally correct.
1: All right, well, we've had a great time catching up with you. I'm so glad that, that you are here to talk and chat with us, Spencer, and have those great tips for, for regular pilots. You know, I think that's so useful for that kind of information. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. What do you think uh, the chances are that you'll be able to get the Pitts S1C, c uh, Spinner 3 repaired, and get it back up in the air this, this season or this year?
2: The plane is now in my mechanic shop. He went with his trailer and picked it up Monday. I helped him take the wings off and put it in the trailer. It's already gonna start being worked on, the insurance company's involved, the FAA wants to investigate. There's not too much damage to the airplane, although that engine, there's some damage to the front crank of that engine. So they want the engine back to um, examine it. I think this airplane, uh, that'll be the longest part of, of getting the work done. It needs some body work. As you could see, Bondo isn't gonna fix this one. They'll need a few new sheet metal parts, a new prop, that engine um, gone through. I think it could get back together probably in the fall. So I may not be able to try this, this spin attempt again until the end of the year, hopefully, or maybe early 2020 at this point.
1: Okay, but it really depends on, on the investigation as to what happened to the propeller and a little bit of a look at the engine in case. And really, we should tell our podcast listeners that's really not on you. It's to make sure something similar doesn't happen to someone else or if there was some type of manufacturing defect or something else that we need to look for, you know, in common components.
2: Right. So actually, this is a great topic. It's a, it's a whole other podcast discussion, but it's an experimental airplane. The engine, while it's based on a Lycoming O360, the way it's modified, it's certainly experimental. The propeller is an experimental propeller. And there's an important point to make about that. Experimental airplanes and experimental airplane parts doesn't mean you made them in your garage or went to Home Depot and just bought screws off the shelf. Everything in that airplane was built at, at, at the shop that's been working on my airplanes for years. They work on the airplane as if it were certified. All the hardware, tubing, hoses, the way the engine's put together. Everything is built with components that would be used in a certified aircraft. It's just that that particular combination of engine prop and bolts and parts is not in itself a certified plane. So there are no corners cut here. There's there's no Home Depot, Lowe's, or the joke is uh, National Aviation Parts Association or NAPA <laughs> parts. They're all high quality aviation parts, but they're put together in a way that makes this airplane unable to be certified. So, that's another lesson learned. Is if you're going to work on an experimental airplane or have one, and, fly, and a lot of people do these days, you still need to think about it like it's certified. Don't cut corners on parts and supplies or the people who do the work on the airplane.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And just to sum up, you had the best of the best in componentry on that aircraft from the spinner to the tail, no doubt. So, uh, that's a good takeaway for other pilots to think about that, even the ones that are flying home built or experimental category aircraft.
2: Right. Still buy the best hardware, the best engine, the best propeller, the best instruments. Find the best people to work on it or, or to supervise your work you can. Do not cut corners. And, and people always ask me, Did you build that airplane? And I tell them, I would not fly in any airplane I built.
1: Gotcha. Well, speaking of flying in any airplanes, we wish you the best of luck uh, in the next airplane that you're flying. Uh, Hopefully it's uh, Spinner 3 once again. But um, we need to sign off in a minute, Spencer. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to let our podcast listeners know about? I thought we had some great takeaways today. We talked about aviating and uh, navigating and communicating. We talked about emergency procedures. We talked about if you really are an aerobatic pilot and you have a parachute plan to use it or at least know how to use it. And we talked about, you know, some backups and we talked a little bit about the technology. Is there anything else that we missed?
2: I think there's one more thing to say. Get outside your comfort zone. And I tell this to people, I do flight interviews all the time. If you tell me you have 100 hours a year and all you do every weekend is go to the same three airports, getting a hamburger, then I would say you you have one hour, 100 times. So get outside your comfort zone, do something different, go someplace new, challenge yourself a little bit. Get with an instructor, learn some new skill, um, get your commercial rating. You'll, if you don't have one, you'll, you'll learn about cool things like chandelles and Lazy Aids, which are not aerobatic maneuvers, and push yourself. Do not stay where you are. Always be advancing in the activity.
1: Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Spencer Suderman, world record holder for inverted flat spins and an aviation ambassador to a lot of folks and a role model to many, too. We appreciate you being on Hangar Talk today.
2: David, thank you for having me. I love talking to you, and uh, I hope next time we talk, it's because we're uh, we're counting how many spins I did.
1: That sounds good, Spencer. Thanks again for joining us on Hanger Talk via Skype, and we'll talk to you real soon.
0: So, David, I, 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 my, my one question about this, I mean, obviously he's great. Uh, the airplane is a little little banged up, but it's going to be fine. I want to know, where is that propeller? Is it like sticking out of somebody's chimney somewhere?
1: I think Spencer wants to know the answer to that same question. And I think that if you if you take a look <laughs> at Jim Moore's story at AOPA.org, it also has a little bit of Spencer's flight path on it. And if folks who are in podcast land are listening and paying attention, and they want to help Spencer track down his propeller, I am sure he would appreciate that help.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, and let us know if you find it. That's, uh, you know, maybe from the air. It's easier to spot. Who knows? That's right. <laughs> okay, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen,
1: And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you could find us at aopa.org slash talk. We're at the Sporties Takeoff app and on iTunes. All right, we'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your
2: freedom to fly.